lesson 11 in our series. Uh, so as I mentioned last time, we are, we are over the, uh, just over the hump. Uh, we're into the second half of Hosea and, and hopefully keeping pace uh, so that we can do this at about uh, a chapter a week. So we'll have about seven, seven or eight weeks left. Uh, be finishing up right around Easter uh, Sunday in early April. So uh, that's kind of the track that we're on. Uh, last week we covered chapter 7, uh, talked about the deceitfulness of sin, how sin both deceives our hearts and then also turns us into deceivers. Um, the question is, how, how does sin do that? Uh, how does sin uh, deceive us? And there were four ways that we, we talked about in that chapter. We said, first of all, that sin will deceive you into thinking that your sin will go unnoticed. Uh, this is really the dynamic going on there in chapter 7. If you want to look um, there in verse 2, he says, They do not, and again, this is the Lord bringing evidence, bringing uh, accusations, charges against Israel, uh, but then laying out uh, examples of that and, and bringing the evidence to support uh, the charges. He says there in verse 2, They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all of their wickedness. Uh, now their deeds are all around them, and they are before my face. So sin deceives us into thinking that God doesn't remember, but He does. Uh, he does know, He does remember. Proverbs 5.21 says, The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord watches all of His paths. So that's the first thing that sin does. Sin just, just con- convinces us, deceives us into thinking that, that, that we're the only ones that, are, that know these things, see these things, um, and once you buy, buy that lie that your sin is unnoticeable, sin multiplies and escalates in a, in a really a terrifying way. Uh, and that is what we read about in verses 3 to 7 of Hosea 7. Uh, in, in verses 3 to 7, it describes this, uses this language of, of really a, a baker and an, a, an oven that is being heated, uh, heated up. And it's really describing how the people of Israel, how their hearts were burning with evil desire. Um, they were usurping God's uh, authority, um, God's right, sovereign right to raise up and to take down political leaders. And so they were inciting these uh, insurrections. They were stirring up uh, unrest in the nation. They were bringing leaders down. They were putting new leaders in place, really sort of trying to to control that element of Israel's life. And so this, this leads us to a, a sort of a second deception, and that is that sin will deceive you regarding the cost of false trust. It, it, it will deceive you regarding the price tag. Um, when, when you're caught up in sin, you, 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 you don't pay attention to uh, what sin is, is really costing you. Um, and, the, and yet the scriptures in this, in this uh, chapter talk about how uh, sin is, is eroding society, sin is personally costing them, uh, it, is, it is aging them, it is uh, sapping their vigor. Uh, even in the Psalms, Psalm, David uh, in Psalm 32 and Psalm 38 talks about a period in his life when he was covering his own sin and actually uses that language of, it's like being out in the hot sun. You guys know what it's like here in the south. It's like being out in the hot sun in the middle of July and on a 98-degree day with no water. And you're just sitting there, and you're just sitting there, and it's just slowly, it's like your, your energy is just being drained away. He said, that's what it was like when I was keeping my sin hidden and concealed. It's like I was, 
uh, all of the effort that was going into uh, hiding and covering, and as, as that was going on, then this just all of the, all the drain of, of resources that takes place in those scenarios. So this is Hosea seven eight uh, talks there about Ephraim mixing themselves or himself with the nations. In verse nine, strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. And so it's like he's just saying. They're, the enemy is devouring them on multiple levels, and they don't even know that it's this decay is in this uh, this uh, devouring is even ta- is even taking place. Then it says, uh, "Gray hairs also were sprinkled on him, and yet he does not know it." So it's as if this there's this ripening of of what's coming. The, the judgment is coming, and yet even though they are. Uh, far along in the process of God bringing, about to bring uh, the most severe form, because this is actually a form of judgment, right? I mean, anytime we sin and we reap consequences, whether we know it or not, that's, that is still judgment, right? It's still, it's, we're still experiencing that, and yet this is describing a time prior to the Assyrian invasion. So it's like the devouring has already taken place, and yet something worse is coming, and so he talks about this, and he uses that analogy of just saying, it's like you're, you're getting gray hairs, you're getting older, you're getting further along in this process, and ju- judgment is imminent, and yet you don't even recognize the obvious signs. You can't look in the mirror, and you can't notice that your hair was once black, but now it's silver. And in the same way, you just keep going along your daily routine, living as you want to live, and you don't even recognize the obvious signs around you in the ways in which sin is... Uh, what, what sin is, the, the havoc that, that sin is re, uh, reaping in your life. It's like that old saying, you've, some, some of you heard this before, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay, right? I mean, that is true time and time again. You start down a path of sin, and sin, you, you think you can stop when you want to stop, right? You're like, I'll just sin, but I'm going to sin only to a certain point, but sin always takes you beyond that. That's your mentality that you can just turn that spigot off when you feel like it. That's just not the way it works, right? Because of this element of self-deception. You think that you can control it, but you can't, you can't control that, right? And so it takes you farther than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay, right? Because you think you're just going to go experience this pleasure or whatever it is. And then when you're good and, and ready, you'll return home. And yet... The scriptures over and over again, we see these examples of sin keeping us uh, there longer than we want to stay there, and then obviously costing us more than we ever thought we would pay. The third thing we said was that sin will deceive you into blaspheming the character of God. This is verses 13 to 15. A sin deceived Israel into speaking lies against the Lord who would heal and restore them, um, and, and they, would, they would end up blaspheming um, God's the sweetest desires of God's character, devising evil against God, trampling His goodness, uh, giving credit to others for only what God had done for them. And then finally, sin will deceive you into thinking you can sin without consequence. Again, this sort of ties back into the second point there. Uh, Verse 16, he says, They turn, but not upward. Uh, They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. So this, this is the lie, that we can sin uh, and that we can get away with it, and yet God promises to bring them down, uh, promises to chasten them, 
to bring a net on them and capture them, uh, bring down their princes, bring down their rulers, and says there will be a recaptivity. You know, because we know that they didn't, uh, that Israel did not go into captivity in Egypt. They went into, captiv- into captivity into Assyria, but yet he uses that imagery because that's something that all, the, all Israel would have understood that, that you're going to be going to Egypt. Well, going to Egypt? We're actually going to over here. Well, yeah, but it's, it's essentially, it's like you're going back into captivity. That's what it should, it should remind you of that enslavement and that bondage that, that Israel was, was, a, was a part of Israel's history. Um, so sin will blind you. It's not just bad. It is deceptive. And we want to pick up here in chapter 8. Let me just read this all the way down through. Uh, let me just read the entire chapter, and then we'll go back and, and pull it apart. Uh, verse 1, put the trumpet to your lips like an eagle. The enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I do not, did, not know, did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin... They have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins, and they will return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities But I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. Now let's break this down a little bit. Um, And you'll notice it really at the beginning and at the end we have a warning. We have a warning of impending invasion there in verses 1 to 3. And a warning of impending destruction at the very end, at the last half of verse 13 and into verse 14. And this is what we've seen in Hosea, that we have both in Hosea assurances of God's judgment, and at the same time, we have assurances of God's love. That is, that is what you find. We, we talked about it uh, in the earlier chapters that is sort of back and forth. You know, judgment's coming, and then there's these reassurances of God's covenant faithfulness and His mercy and His grace. And so, even though there is this... this, this um, uh, the severity of God's judgment that is promised, yet we have this permanence of God's love living side by side with that. And though judgment is necessary, total annihilation is not 
uh, not the goal. That is not the goal for God's people to totally annihilate them. And the Lord is not overreacting in his threats and then backing away apologetically because of his love for them. So it's not as if God is sort of threatening these things and then like, uh, like a parent that would threaten some sort of punishment to their kids but really have no intention of carrying it out. That's not what the Lord is doing either. I mean, the Lord, when he says judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And yet that judgment, in a way, is the, is, is the very thing that God is going to use to draw Israel ultimately back to him. It's, it's not something that threatens his covenant faithfulness and his covenant love for them. Uh, so we have these absolute promises of impending judgment because nothing else than that would draw his people back because his people never, they never earned the love of God anyway, right? So they, they never earned God's love in the first place. And so because that is true, they cannot send his love away, right? So had they bought the Lord's love to begin with, then they could do something to cause God to turn away and not love them anymore. But because God loved them in an unconditional way, and in spite of their, their sin and rebellion, then, then they cannot do something that is going to cause God to, to cancel out his, his love for them. In fact, that, that, is, that is really the message of, of the gospel, right? I mean, we, the, the Lord saves us in his sovereign mercy, and, and, and even though we fail in many ways, he is the one who keeps us. He is the one that preserves us. He is the one that brings sometimes chastening and judgment into our lives in order to bring us back in love, right? But there's, there's not something that we are going to do that is going to, to eliminate the love of God. Or as Romans 8 says, right, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So this is a, this is a theme throughout scriptures, uh, the scriptures, and these truths run side by side in, in this particular book as well. God is not fickle and changing his mind. Both of these are true and both will come to pass. God, God will judge and chasten, but the underlying motive for all of it is his undying and unearned love. So we'll still see it. We're not seeing it as... Um, as, as rapid fire, and, and, and we're not seeing um, that sort of back and forth, those promises of God's faithfulness like we did in the very beginning, but we're, gonna come, we're about to come up on some sections of Scripture in, in, the, in the latter part of Hosea, again, these reaffirmations of God's love, even though he's going to carry through with his, his promise to bring judgment and chastening. So there is this initial warning. You'll notice there in verse 1, he says, "...put the trumpet to your lips." Uh, Like an eagle, the enemy comes uh, against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So it literally says here, put the shofar in your mouth. Okay, so we've talked about this this shofar, this trumpet. This was an, an instrument used primarily in the Old Testament on two occasions. One of those was a call to worship. The other was a call to to war or to battle. We mentioned this back when we, we got to chapter 5, verse 8. So there were these, uh, these two main uses for the shofar in, in the ancient Near East. Uh, in, that, in that context of worship celebrations that involved the, the tabernacle uh, or the temple, uh, they used it sometimes as a way to announce these 
these holidays, uh, these uh, uh, f- festivals in Israel. And then it was used for signifying the start of a war or for rallying the troops for battle. So with this sort of sense of, uh, you might say in this, with a sense of sarcasm, the Lord says to Israel, blow your trumpet because war is coming. But, but the irony is that it's, 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 um, it's not them who are declaring the, the war, it's the Lord. <laughs> so he's telling them basically get ready for battle, but then what he's about to say is that he is the one that is coming against them. And even and again, even as he describes what's going to happen, uh, as he uses these other world powers, these other nations, it's still the Lord behind that. And so he says there, and like an eagle, or you could say uh, it's really a, like a vulture uh, that represents carnage and death. He says, in like that, the enemy is is coming, and so there are there are that uh, they are there blowing the horn while. The vultures are, you just get this imagery of they're blowing the horn, but the, but the vultures are already circling overhead. Uh, the, the, the enemy is already on, on the move because, and he, this sort of very sort of a general broad description here, they have transgressed and they have rebelled. Okay, so that, that is the general warning, that is sort of the general Indictment, and yet, nevertheless, even though these, this is going on, even though battle is, is uh, war is imminent, uh, judgment is in, imminent, they still continue to keep up appearances, right? So, even though the Lord's telling them, it's just so obvious. It's like you're already feeling the consequences of your sin, and then this the, the prophets have spoken that the Lord is going to bring Assyria against you, and yet they continue to act and to live as if they are. Faithful to the Lord, right? And so they say there, verse 2, they cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. So this is is their assessment. It's like, you know, God is saying, your sin, your adultery, your idolatry is so obvious that literally the vultures, the consequences of this, the judgment that's coming, these things are flying over your head. Right, ready to pounce, and yet you in your heart keep saying, "We're okay, we're okay. We know the Lord." This was this was their assessment of themselves. Again, so we're this is like a spillover from chapter seven in the sense that this is the deception of sin. The deceiving thing about sin is that you can be up to your neck in it and still be telling yourself everything's okay, right? I'm, I'm, I have a close walk with the Lord. I know Him. I, I've, I, have, I have experienced His presence. I am obeying Him. I am being faithful to Him. And that's the furthest, furthest thing from, from the truth. So that is their assessment of themselves, that we, we know you. But think about the times that we've already seen where God says, you do not know me. Okay, so He does this back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Now remember, this, is, uh, this was that general sort of the, the summary statement of all of the charges that are to come in the, in the following chapters. So this is that sort of, you might even say in a courtroom setting, these are opening remarks, right? This would be like the attorney getting up and saying, just in a sentence, this is what I, these are the charges that I plan to bring. 
And he says this, I have a, the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is, and he mentions three things, there is no faithfulness, no kindness, and no knowledge of God in the land. So he says there is essentially no faithfulness, which is, um, uh, it has to do with truth. I mean, this is a word for truth. So there's no truth in the land. And then these are the, actual, the things that we'll see, even in chapters 9 and 10, he'll bring, he'll bring examples of this. No truth in the land, no loving kindness, right? No covenant love, no faithfulness on the part, at least on the part of Israel. So God is faithful, God is kind, God is a covenant-keeping God, but he's just saying that on their part, they have not responded to God's love and faithfulness with loyalty, right? So they have not been disloyal. We've already seen examples of that, and it's, it's the reason why... Uh, Hosea uses this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, his own life and this experience with, with Gomer and her infidelity and, 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 and lack of loyalty. Those become sort of the, the illustrations of this, of what's going on in, in the nation at large. So there's no faithfulness, there's no kindness, and then he says, and there is no knowledge of God in, in the land. Of course, that doesn't mean that they didn't know anything about God. It's actually a word for experiential knowledge. Just saying, they might have known some things about God, but they did not experience the realities of those things in their lives. Chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Chapter 5, verse 4. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Verse uh, 6 of chapter 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So again, this is about... A relationship. This is about an intimacy in their relationship with the Lord, and God is just simply saying, "You know some things, but you don't walk walk with the Lord in a way that reflects what you know." Right. So you're not. You might say this way: You're not living in light of what you know. So you know some things about the Lord, but you're not living practically in light of those things. And so this is not the first time that God has said this about them. They're sitting back claiming they know God, and God says, no, you don't know me. You don't know me. So it's not as if they're without information. They are without knowledge. And what they know is not a treasure to them anymore. It's, it's like God has revealed himself to this nation in a, in, a, in a unique way, and they don't appreciate it. Right? It's like they don't see that as something that is, is special, that is to be something that is to be treasured, something that is to be guarded, something that is to be maintained and, and, and taken care of. They just look at it as, oh, well, you know, yeah, so the Lord did that. Big deal. And that's, that is the place that they had come to. Now, God goes on to describe the spiritual sort of decaying condition of, of which they seem to be so ignorant of. Verse 3 This is back to Hosea 8. He says, Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. And so just in the sense, in the way that they have rejected knowledge, they have rejected good, or is a word here for spurned. So they have held in contempt anything that resembles good. And so God repeats the warning of of verse 1 that the enemy is uh, in pursuit. The enemy is knocking at the door. 
And then he gets more specific. Uh, the text gets more specific. There are, there are four, we might say four specific scenes or four detailed reasons for God's judgment, or maybe looking at it from a different angle, four expressions of the futility of forsaking God, right? The futility of, of idolatry. And so we're just going to walk through these and, and, and highlight these four things as we go. So one of, the first thing here is the futility of trusting in self-appointed leadership, and it's there in the first half of verse 4. He says, they have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. Now we, saw, we saw this back, again, back in chapter 7, the people engineering these coups, um, the people planning the downfall of, of, in some cases, the ruling regime, stoking the coals of insur- insurrection, flattering their leaders, uh, getting rid of kings and appointing new ones, and they're doing all of this, and yet what the Scripture says here is that they did it without God's counsel, okay? So they, they, had, um, they, they had sort of, uh, sort of hijacked this prerogative of God to raise up kings and to bring down kings. They said, no, we can control this, right? We'll get the people that we want in there, uh, we'll vote them in, we'll install them, but then we'll strap them with expectations, right? So we're going to put the people we want in there, but then we have high expectations of what these leaders are supposed to do because we want what we want, right? And when the leaders don't give us what we want, guess what we're going to do? We'll just get rid of them and get someone else, right? And so the people had really sort of gotten in the middle of this and stoking these things and plotting and planning these things, and yet they were doing this without consulting God at all. Now think about this. How did Israel come to have a king in the first place? Right? How did they come to have a human king leader in the first place? Right? They, they begged for one. Right? They begged for one. And who was that? Who was the, who was the first one? Okay, Saul. So they, they asked for that. Now, was it wrong for Israel to ever ask for a king? Was it wrong for them to ask for a king? Okay, no, it wasn't. It wasn't wrong for them to do that. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 made provision for a human king to rule over Israel. But Deuteronomy 17 also commanded Israel to only accept a king whom God chooses, right? And so this king would be different from other kings, from other nations. Uh, he would be completely dedicated to serving God. He would, he would be told not to multiply his wealth uh, not to multiply his wives, uh, not to, to build up a, a, you might say, a bloated military. And he was also commanded or told to, to study God's word every day of his life. In fact, he was, he was told to write out a copy of it, right? To basically get with the priest and he was to handwrite. Now think about that. So you become a Christian. We see, that's, that's, that's what we're going to take. Somebody comes to know the Lord, we're going to say, okay, we got Discipleship 101. Here's what we're going to do. We want you to take a, a pad of paper, and we want you to write the Scriptures just by, by hand. We want you to write yourself a copy. Think about what you would learn if you took a pen and paper and started with Genesis 1, and literally every noun, subject, verb, predicate, adjective, preposition, if you were having to write and see all of that, all those connections of what you, would, what you would learn just from that simple exercise. In fact, 
one of the things in his steps ministries that, that Tim did with the men that would stay in, in, that, in that program, one of the things they had to do early on was write out the Proverbs. They had to write out a proverb a day. And, you know, when you're used to doing this, you know, I mean, some people haven't picked up a pen in a long time, right? So the guys, they, they, they said that one of the most painful things, one of the most painful things they had ever done was to write all of that out. And yet at the end of six, eight, ten months, most of them would say that was the most beneficial thing that they did in the program. One of the things that would stick with them is what they learned in those first 31 days of just writing out the Proverbs. So there was provision for a king. That's, that's not really uh, the issue. The issue is that Israel did not care about finding a king who loved God. Right? They wanted to rush the process and find someone ahead, you might say, of God's timing. And Israel would have to suffer through a king not of God's choosing to get a king of God's choosing. Right? So this was a really a problem going back to the earlier days in, in the life of Israel, this, this autonomy of self-appointed leadership, right? They wanted a king, but we want the king that we want, and they were, they were sizing him up in relation to the kings of the other nations, right? They weren't thinking about his heart. They weren't thinking about his service to, to the Lord. They weren't thinking about his, his dedication to the Lord and worship of the Lord and his diligence in following the, 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 the covenant of the Lord. They, they, were, they wanted to look at the, the material, the external uh, the, the, the outer things. And that's why when, again, Samuel comes and, and David is identified, right, in, in 1 Samuel, that we find that, that uh, statement about man looking on outward appearances, but God doing what? In contrast, God is the one who examines the heart. So this was a problem throughout Israel's history. Self-appointed leadership, endorsing the leaders that they wanted, and then trusting, if you will, in their own endorsements. So it's like, we're going to pick the person we want to be over us and endorse them, and then we're going to trust that we made a good choice. We're going to trust our ability to, to make that assessment. And what Hosea tells us here is that that is utterly futile. In fact, that is, that is vanity. Um, in fact, this whole issue of idolatry, because that's what this is all about, it's interesting because when you get beyond... Uh, the, the, the days of, of Solomon and David, and you get into the Old Testament, the, the sections of the Old Testament with the prophets and the minor, major minor prophets, um, into the sort of um, the, the period of time right before the exile to, to Assyria, and then even in the, the period of exile and post-exilic writings of the Old Testament, the, the word that is used in Ecclesiastes for vanity, vanity of vanities, that Old Testament word is actually translated as idols in a lot of that exilic literature in the Old Testament. And so they would actually, it would be the word for vanities or futilities, but they would translate it in your English translation. In most cases, it's translated as idols because that's what this is. I mean, when you put your trust in Anything you do, right? I mean, if you put your trust in anything besides the Lord himself, that is a vain thing. That is a futile thing. That is not going to last. You're going to come up empty every time. So these are just examples of that. So we have the futility of of that sort of the, the autonomy of appointing the leaders that they wanted. The second one here is the futility of trusting in self created deities. Self created deities. Second part of verse four. He says, with their silver and gold, 
They have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. Now there are, there are numerous passages in the Old Testament that speak about the folly uh, and the foolishness of idol worship. Uh, one, you know, and there's, we could go to a bunch of them, but just uh, for example, Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2 talks about this, um, this, the folly of idolatry. In verse 18, says, What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. So you say, well, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I mean, because I, when you think of idols in the Old Testament, again, most people in their minds go to this, they think about little trinkets. They think about little statues and things you'd set up on your mantle of your fireplace. But I'm saying forget about the form that it takes, right? This is about what is going on in the heart of the idol worshiper. And he makes that connection here because he says they're, they're making and carving something. But then he says, for its maker trusts in, and this is the problem, he trusts in his own handiwork. So he's just saying, forget about the, what the actual idol, the form that it takes. The problem here at the root is that the idol worshiper has made something himself and then put his trust in the thing that he has made whatever form it takes, right? So this, this is about a false trust, right? Trusting in something that you believe that you can do or that you can make happen, okay? That you, you trusting in something that you, you believe that you can do or make happen. And he goes on in verse 19. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise, And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. So it's like like you you picture them making this thing and then sort of knocking on it, (laughs) going, anybody home? You know, come on, wake up. You know, it's like, like they're knocking on this hollow piece of wood that they have crafted, and they're trying to get it to talk. They're trying to get it to speak. Right? That is the foolishness of what is going on. Yet in contrast, he says there in verse 20, But the Lord is in His temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. So it's, this, it's like you're knocking on this idol saying, Anybody home? Right, and in contrast, the Lord has filled His temple. He's home. You know, it's like He is home. And guess what? You're knocking on the door, and you're getting silence. That's the answer back, right? Because idols don't speak. And yet, the Lord is saying, "I'm in. I'm. I am where I need to be." And guess what? You're the one that needs to be silent. So you need to be quiet, right? Because I am in my holy temple, and it is absolute foolishness, he says, to make something and then to say, essentially, in your heart, I will, I'll trust in that. I'll trust in that. Now, don't, make, don't miss the language there in verse 18. He says, you have made it, 
you have crafted it, because these idols did not just leap out of your heart and come out of nowhere, right? These are things that you put a lot of a time into, okay? They just, these things don't just appear. These are things that in a sort of a, uh, a symbolic way that we are crafting and fashioning all the time, okay? You think back to the record of the first golden calf in the Bible, and when when Moses comes down after receiving the law of God, comes comes down and, and he confronts uh, Aaron and, and, and asks him about the golden calf and what's been going on. And he says, uh, verse 24, this is Exodus 33, he says, I said to them, he's talking about the people, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Right, so I, he said, I, "I didn't, you know. I mean, I just took the people's gold and I just put it in there, and poof, this cal- this calf popped out." Right. Well, was that true? No, that was not true. In fact, you you go back and, and listen to what it says back in the early part of that chapter, back in verse one. It says, "Now, when the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they assembled uh, about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us.' As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt." We do not know what, he's, what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the, in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. And all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Right? And yet when Moses comes to him and says, so tell me how this happened, he says, oh, I just took their gold and threw it in the fire and out popped the idol, (laughs) right? It's like, no, you didn't do that. That's not the way idolatry works, right? We spend a lot of time fashioning and carving and making these things. These idols don't just appear in our lives. We take time to develop and to shape these things that we put our trust in, right? You think about the things that you sometimes lean on or you turn to in times of trouble or you put your hope and your confidence in. You spend a lot of time thinking about those things. You spend a lot of time uh, uh, tweaking those things. You spend a lot of time putting those things together and getting those things in place. And then to step back and say, oh, I, I, I don't know where that came from, right, makes absolutely no sense. So these are objects of false trust. All, a false trust, and we, we pay, as, as believers, we pay very close attention to detail. Uh, we are very artistic and very creative about beautifying this, this ugly self-trust, right? Uh, we don't want to just come right out and say, oh, we're trusting in that rather than trusting in the Lord, right? Uh, but we, we spend a lot of time propping these things up, right, and constructing these things, and fashioning these things, uh, and and making them look good, right? Um, so that it's not so obvious that we're really relying on them and not God, right? So, oh, oh yeah, I've got that thing, or I've got this thing. Oh, no, I'm just trying, just trying to be prudent, you know, just trying to be, you know, just trying to think ahead. But if, but if, but if we could peel back, right, our hearts, oftentimes it, th- those things have taken a different place. Right? Our confidence and reliance has now shifted away from the Lord uh, and onto and in, in those things. Again, this is vanity. 
Uh, our third point is this, the futility of trusting in self-protective measures. Self-protective measures. Verse 7, For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow, swallow it up. So he's referring back to these making of alliances. We mentioned this last week, but he says in making those alliances that they are essentially sowing, they sow empty things and yet they reap a tornado, right? So sowing some clever alliance is not going to work. And this, this, um, this idol worship which promises prosperity and fertility and blessing because you have to remember the, the form of of Baal worship, this form of worship that they had brought into their, that they had mixed in with God's sort of covenant regulations and stipulations about worship, that's what this was about. These, these idols were things that the, the, the uh, cult religions around them, they would turn to these things for those things, for, for, for prosperity and for protection and for blessing. And so he's just saying, that is, they promise those things, but those things are actually going to be swallowed up. And not just those things, but they themselves are going to be gobbled up. Verse 8, he says, Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. And so at this point, they're being described as those that are now among the nations. And then he sort of draws this, just brings out this, this issue of the, the way in which they are viewed by the nations, the way in which the nations assess them, especially Assyria, when they try to, to sort of cozy up to Assyria, says, you're going to do this, and, and, and this, is what, this is what the nations are going to think about you. They're going to they're treat you, they're going to think about you as just some, some useless piece of pottery, right? so, something to be trampled on. Right, So you're going to spend all this time and all this energy and effort trying to please or strike a deal or a bargain with this, with this nation. But in the end, they don't care about you. I mean, it's like you think that they honestly care. And so you're putting and investing all of this energy and time and resources into developing a relationship because you think they're going to look out for you. They're going to protect you, but they could care less. Verse 9. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. So think about this. To get provision and protection, they had to pay for that. Right? Or you could say it this way. They had to pay for their lovers to love them. Right? They had to pay for their lovers to love them. But they didn't have to pay God anything for him to protect and provide for them because he was their husband. Right? It's like, that's the thing. It's like, you, you, have, you have Israel, you have the Lord. And the Lord is saying, I love you with an, with an everlasting love. I love you with an unconditional love. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to buy anything. I will love you. I will care for you. I will protect you. They abandon God, turn to these other people, and pay them tribute right, to do the very thing that God promised to do to begin with, but in the end, they're not going to do it anyway, right, because they treat them like a broken vessel, like a piece of trash, right? 
So they didn't have to pay God to do this, and yet these are the very things that God promised to do for, for them, and yet he, they spurned him and walked away. Now, will this be successful? Uh, will giving Assyria tribute money, will, will, will that pay off in the end? Verse 10, even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. So they will scatter, they will mingle with Assyria. You remember back in chapter 7, verse 8, again, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations and Ephraim has become a cake not turned. So they will scatter, but in the context of verse 10, God will gather them up, but not to restore them, because there are times when this, this uh, concept of God gathering them is actually in, used in a, in a redemptive way, like He's going to gather them together, and it's really a passage that deals prophetically with Him restoring Israel. But in this, in this case, He uses the same verb, gathering, but he's, this is about judgment. So he's, he's doing this, he's gathering them up, even though they're scattering, right? They're, they're scattering out, looking for, these, for this help, outside help, looking for these alliances, and yet God says, no, I'm going to drop the net over them, I'm going to bring them back together, but not for restoration, but for judgment. And the Lord will diminish them. Again, we talked about those ways in which that would happen, uh, and, and, and financially and in, and in many other ways they would be drained, because of their looking to outside outsiders for help. And these alliances would ultimately take their toll on, on Israel. So this is, this is about trusting in those alliances, looking for protection and safety in someone or something else other than God. Right? Again, futility, vanity. Now finally we see this. The futility of trusting in self-styled worship. Self-styled worship. Again, even though they were involved in this gross sin, they never abandoned religion. Right? So again, even though they were committing all these atrocities, they continued to go to sacrifice. They continued to go about and, and perform their what they consider to be their religious duties and obligations. Verse 11, Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin... They have become altars of sinning for him. And so they, they hadn't, hadn't said no to God and yes to everything else. They just simply said, we'll take it all. <laughs> yeah, we'll take the Lord. I mean, we'll take him and then we'll take all of these other things too, right? And in doing that, they multiplied altars for sin, not altars to worship the Lord. Right, and these these would have been the endless number of altars to to idols, and so Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin. They have become altars of sinning for him. That is to say, the altar, a place. If you think about the the symbolism behind that in the Old Testament, the altar was the place where salvation was granted. Right, this was the place where sins were forgiven. And yet, this has now become an occasion for sin, right? This is what they did. This is what we can do, right? They take the very holy things of God and corrupt them into an opportunity for even greater sin. So we we said this before, and it's worth repeating. We need God's help to get anything right, right? 
We need God's help to get anything right. We can't worship, we can't sing, we can't pray, we can't evangelize, we can't preach or teach without God's help. We can turn any one of these things into a way to worship self. Right? We have the capability of doing that. And notice, the answer is, is not more revelation from God or more commands or more light. Right? Verse 12, though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. Now that sounds a little strange, right? When you read it, how many of you actually have the translation strange in that verse, in your translation? Okay. A strange thing. The idea, is, is some, the idea of something being strange uh, is, it has more to do with it being not so much odd. We see something is strange. We're saying it's peculiar or it's odd. But here it's, it's really the idea that it's something that's foreign, right? So that's why the scriptures say, that don't take for yourself a strange woman, okay? In Proverbs, it's not talking about a peculiar or an odd acting woman. It's saying, don't take, in fact, it's translated in most translations not as a strange woman, but as an, adulter, an adulteress. Just saying someone that is a foreigner or someone, you might even say, someone that is outside the, the boundaries, right? So God has drawn a boundary in marriage and he's saying, that, don't go outside of that, right? That's a foreign thing. Or in some cases, the scriptures tell, would tell them not to adopt strange gods or foreign gods or to not offer, in some cases, strange fire. So again, this was something that was, that was off limits. And this is how they treated God's law. They were treating God's law as something that was utterly pagan or something, you might even say, that was aberrant. So they, they came to, a, to the place where Scripture was foreign to them, like a pagan deity. But it makes perfect sense, right? If they can corrupt the altar, they can certainly corrupt the revelation that explains what the altar is all about. Verse 13, as for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins, and they will return to Egypt. Again, was it wrong for them to eat a portion of the meat that was being sacrificed? Well, not exactly, right? It depends. It was, it was prescribed what you could and could not eat and what the priests could and, and could not eat, but the timing and the portions and the regulations were made very clear. And either these things were being violated or the, violated or the meat um, was being selfishly consumed by the priests or both. In fact, you see an example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 2 with the sons of Eli, right? That they, they would do this. They would, they would take more than they should have, and the timing of when they took it was wrong, and they did it, it says there, by force. That if the people would not give up part of their sacrifice to the, those priests, it says, we'll take it from you, right? And the idea here is that first things first, Right? You don't take what you want and then give God the leftovers, right? You, you, this, this is about exalting your pleasure over God's supremacy or over the glory of God. This is about exalting your pleasure over God's pleasure, and this is what Israel had done, and it displeased God. So much so that he said, Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins, 
and they will return to Egypt. Again, this is another summary statement. This part of verse 13 and 14, similar to back, uh, the verses back in, in verses 1 to 3. In verses 1 to 3, it was a warning about invasion. Here it is about impending destruction. The Lord will remember their iniquity. In one sense, we know that God always knows and remembers everything, but here the idea is that He, he, the idea is that he will pay attention to it with a plan to act. He will pay attention to their sin with a plan to judge them, and they will return to Egypt. And again, as we mentioned last time, this is about re-enslavement. As they were once enslaved, so they would be despised as they are enslaved again. Verse 14, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings, or a word, it's really a word for a citadel or a, a fortress uh, or a stronghold. So you see the contrast here. God will remember because they forgot, right? They forgot him, not literally forgot him, but in the sense that they were not paying attention to him and keeping him central. And so it was all about, their, their attitude was basically, let me be Let me think, let me plan, let me live in a way that feels right to me, let me choose, let me worship the way that I want to worship, let me appoint the leaders that I want to be in control, let me do what I want. Why does God have to be so central? (laughs) So again, they kept going to the altars, they kept going to these high places in Israel, so there was this religious exercise, but they didn't want to keep God central in what they did. They just wanted Him around, but then they wanted all these things that they wanted. That is how they were living. Really pushing God to the, to the periphery or the outskirts. Leaning then on their material, material prosperity. Building places for their self-appointed earthly kings. And Judah, it says here, had, has trusted in his own strength for safety. Multiplying its defenses. But again, that would not prevent God from bringing utter destruction. So this is about self-made security, self-made prosperity, but in the end it would not protect them. This was Israel's problem. Self-appointed leadership, self-created deities, self-protective measures, self-styled worship, and placing their confidence in those things. Or we might say this, think right there. <laughs> That's the common ground, right? Placing their trust in self. And, and, and again, don't, 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 you read this and you're like, I can't believe they did that. If you think that, you've missed it, right? Because we're guilty of these same things. Do you ever trust in what you endorse? Do you ever, do you ever endorse something and then turn right around and it's like, and then that's your, your, your hope, your confidence and reliance goes there? Do you sometimes trust in what you can accomplish by your own abilities? Do you ever rely on what you can do to insulate yourself against threats and fears and risk? Do you trust in what you can perceive or feel even in your worship more than being faithful to God's truth and believing it even when the feelings aren't present? Because, see, I think that this, this, this worship that Israel got wrapped up in was a very emotional, very, in their minds, it was this sort of transcendent, higher form of worship than what God had revealed. 
or to bring it into our context, there was a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions and a lot of self involved in their worship experience. It wasn't about simply knowing the truth and, and obeying the truth and being faithful to God, right? You think about even that calf experience, right? Moses goes away to get the law of God, and the people are going, we don't know where he went. Where did he go? We need something right here. We need something that we can see and we can feel and we can touch, right? I mean, they had no patience for that. And yet I'm saying that's exactly what we're doing really in the church today, is rather than come and be concerned about fidelity to the truth and what God has prescribed for us, we want to create a self-styled worship, right? We want something, it's, it's more, we want more, more energy, we want more emotion, we want, want more feelings. And I'm not saying that, it, that you shouldn't emote or have feelings when you worship. I'm just saying you, your feelings may not always line up with, align with what you know to be true, but that doesn't mean that you're not worshiping God. If your concern is for the truth and being faithful to it, that is the heart of worship, Right? And you may have the emotions or you may not, but you, you might even come this morning with a heavy heart about something. And so emotionally, you're heavy, but you might be singing in a moment words that don't necessarily agree with the emotion you're feeling. And yet when you, by faith, because that's what this is about, right? It's not about sight. If you, by faith, grasp the truth that is being sung or grasp the truth that is being taught or preached and you live your life by it, I'm saying that is worship, right? That is what God is after. It's not just simply about that emotional experience. So self needs to go. Self needs to go. This is who we are as Christians. Apostle Paul said this, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul had every reason to put confidence in the flesh, and yet he says, I I repudiate all that. I reject all that because I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ's assessments. I want to know Christ's valuations. That is our desire. May the Lord help us to do that, to keep that as our focus, killing self-reliance and pride in pursuing Christ, truth to Christ, truth about Christ, loyalty to Christ, and a true knowledge of Christ, right? A relationship with Christ, okay? All right, well, we'll stop there. Uh, went a little bit over today, but thank you for the time. And uh, we will, again, we'll keep plugging away. If you're, if you're trying to keep up and read, we'll be into chapter, chapter 9 next week and try to cover that.